the mistake that I see people making over and over again is to think that experimentation is a way that they can uh, prove how clever they are. And, and I know this mistake because I've been there. I've done it. Um, yeah. I used to think I've got this great idea and it's going to have a huge impact on conversion and I can prove it and it's going to be wonderful. And of course, it's got no basis in reality. It's just a thing that I thought of. And when you do that enough, you realize that your own head is a very bad filter and it's a, it's a bad place to come up with experimentation ideas. All right, let's get this thing going. Oliver, welcome. Excited to have you on here, have a little conversation, chatting, uh, chatting CRO. Before we get started, we'll do some quick introductions. Uh, I'm Sheldon Adams. I am the head of growth here at eNavi. We're a Shopify CRO agency. Joined today by uh, Oliver Palmer. Uh, Oliver, you want to kick things off and uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Sheldon. So um, I am a, a long-time CRO practitioner. Um, I ran my first A-B test in 2008, um, back when Google Website Optimize, you know, it was the first tool that really allowed any idiot with a Google login to go in and like run button tests, essentially. Um, and I was working in sort of various e-commerce roles and just loved the idea of it. You know, I think there's just something about my personality, which means that um Probably like for a lot of us, the idea of using data and experimentation to inform decision making really, really resonated with me. And, um, you know, from that moment onwards, as I say, I, I made all the mistakes, ran all the bad tests, thought I had discovered absolutely brilliant insights. I had not. Um, but was always really enamored of, of A-B testing and, um, you know, keen to get more into it. And then about 10 years almost to the day today, I was living in London and I got a call from a recruiter saying, hey, are you interested in being the first uh, in-house optimization manager? I don't think they had that title then at, um, at Britain's largest mobile telco. And I was like, yeah, sounds great. And that was, you know, long before... Um, there was any real kind of education around this stuff. You know, I think CXL was just sort of a blog, didn't really exist. There, there weren't a lot of resources. Everyone was making a lot of the same mistakes. Um, and we just sort of had to feel our way through. And and I was really fortunate to work in in that business. It was a, it was a telco that just had a, was a merger of the French National Telco and the German National Telco. They were really focused on growing conversion, had a lot of issues with a very expensive sort of brand-based website, um, had a really sort of, you know, supportive, um, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of buy-in from sort of senior people within the business. And, you know, worked there for a couple of years running experiments and was intrigued to discover that the tough stuff was not the technical side of things, it was the cultural side of things. It was helping helping people to learn that it doesn't matter if they don't know and helping to kind of instill that sense of humility in an organization. You know, so many, so many people, particularly sort of senior execs in, in big uh, businesses, in my experience, have this view that they, uh, you know, they set a lot of store by their experience and their battle-hardened wisdom. But one of the things you learn when you start running experiments is no one knows anything and I'm still enough of an idiot to think that I know things, but I don't, you know, I'm slowly learning that yeah. lesson. 
And so I went down this path of working with different organizations, went to a, a big telco, sorry, a big, telco, a big uh, broadsheet newspaper in the UK called The Telegraph, subsequently worked with their product and UX team, did a lot of the same, then spent many years working with Kmart, a, um, a Australia, big, large Australian um, uh, department store, fortunately, um, completely separate to the American one now, which is, is, is still teetering on the brink of bankruptcy. Do they still exist, right. Sheldon? They may exist somewhere. I think they're basically out of business. Someone might have bought them out of bankruptcy, but it's funny these American like sort of like zombie corporate structures. Like (laughs) businesses are allowed to go on in zombie mode for a long time in the US, aren't they? Yeah, Um, definitely are. But yeah, they sort of they started, I think, as a sort of Australian offshoot, but have been separate for for many many years now. Very successful, interesting business, and spent many years working with them, sort of building up a culture of experimentation. Um, and as I said, I've found that that's really where lots of my work is these days is, is not the technical stuff because it's not hard. Um, the hard stuff is how do you change your ways of working to be more um, hypothesis focused? How do you um, learn to embrace that sort of uncertainty and to, to act on and you know, correctly interpret the, interpret the results? And, and that's what I spend a lot of my time doing these days. That's uh I think a very, it was a very tough transition for me personally, going from like that real small tinkering, like, I don't know, non-research based, non, there was nothing behind it. The first like couple of years I was in the industry to like, yeah, to now where it's a much more, more nuanced, sophisticated and, you know, mature approach to this. Um, so you sent over um, ahead of time here, uh, an anecdote you spoke to like with a client, uh, where you kind of um it's almost like testing like free up time or like the stuff figuring out what not to do and mm. was hoping you could kind of go through and just you know talk through that for the listeners and speak to it because i think that's a really cool way of using cro and experimentation that most people probably don't even think of doing so yeah you mm. want to dive in on that real quick yeah sure so you know there are certain there's certain websites where it's it's really hard to use traditional A-B testing to increase conversion rates. It can be really, really tough. Um, and, you know, often in my experience, there's sort of, there's a couple of phases of experimentation. And the first phase and the one that gets all of the attention is fixing broken stuff. You know, things that are obviously broken, yep. Yep. You, can, you can find them, you can fix them. And that's where you get those big wins that get people really excited. But maintaining momentum over the long term and as you get more sophisticated gets really tough and you find that your your win rate, quote unquote, goes down considerably. I should keep these stats to hand because I always forget them. But I know that um, uh, I think Ronnie Kahabi has compiled, uh, you know, a lot of stats from, you know, different really mature organizations that are really great at experimentation, like the classics like Booking.com and, you know, he worked at Bing and um, um, Airbnb and whatnot. The Google have reported different numbers. And everyone says, look, you know, most experiments don't move the needle positively um many some move the needle negatively in my view that's just as good um and many are flat and people really struggle with flat experiments they find them um a bit deflating you know and and uh everyone talks about the huge wins 
And when they don't materialize, you know, in the long term or they diminish, people go, ah, what are we doing? You know, we're wasting our time running all these experiments. And I had this realization a couple of years ago working with a client where, yeah, we'd fixed all of the broken stuff and they were also really uniquely positioned in the market. They had great products at a great price and there weren't a lot of other places we could go to get those products. And in those cases, those sites are really hard to optimize. You know, when people will walk over hot coals to get what you're selling, um, you can make all of the sort of usability tweaks and, you know, do whatever, but it kind of doesn't really make a difference. And so we entered a patch with this client whereby we were just having flat test after flat test after flat test after flat test. And everyone was getting really deflated by it. Um, you know, we were testing interesting things, that things that were grounded in research. We were doing everything correctly. And we probably actually were making the site better, but it just wasn't translating into commercial impact. Yep. And so this idea actually came from uh, my client at the time who said, well, hold on a minute. We spend all this time doing things that we don't test that we think are going to move the needle, that are going to have a you know a big positive impact. Um, what if we just experiment with not doing them, and we can save time, and we can reallocate that time uh, to to places where we know it's going to have an impact? And this set us off this path of running all of these tests. We sort of itemized all of the things that the various teams did. So this is working with the, um, this is with a sort of quote unquote online team at a big retailer. They had, um, you know, category managers, merchandisers, all that sort of stuff. You know, people that are really working around presenting the best sorts of products on the website uh, and trying to squeeze the most out of them. So merchandisers, you know, they'll often do things like making sure that, you know, the products should appear uh, right at the top of the category page, you know, the things that people are looking for or the sort of best offers or, you know, they'll tweak search results to make them more relevant, um, you know, all sorts of things like that. The kind of best practice and intuition says this is going to be useful. This is going to move the needle. And so the first thing that we did was we called it tall banners because what they did, they had on their category pages, they had completely without thinking for years been working with their marketing team to commission and pay for these photos of people using their products, wearing the clothes, you know, interacting with the products, whatever, um, like catalogs. And the idea had always been uh, people resonate with seeing these photos, these like lifestyle images, and it's a good thing. It'll be good for conversion. Um, it was never really questioned, but it was really cumbersome to do. You know, it was, it was expensive. They had to pay for the images, but more than that, they had to maintain them. Stock, the stock ran out very quickly or it turned over very quickly. So they were always having to work with compliance as well to, you know, have compliance on their back to say, hey, this product that's on the page, we're not selling that anymore. You have to remove it. They have to get a new photo. And we worked out that somebody was spending 40 hours a month just like changing these images on category pages because they thought it would have an impact. And so we just tested not doing it. <laughs> we just replaced it with some text or an image or just something really plain. Did that across the whole site. Lo and behold, it had no impact. 
they save 40 hours a week, sorry, 40 hours a month, and we're able to parlay that into um, other other activities which, you know, do have an impact that they, they knew had an impact, like particularly around emails and so on. And we just sort of systematically worked through all of these sorts of opportunities to make sure that everything that the team was doing actually did move the needle. Um, and and it, it was a really it was really eye opening for me that we could use experimentation in that way, and has really informed a lot of the experiments that I've run since. Uh, that's awesome! Like I love hearing those um, atypical wins because I know, like, I feel like ninety percent of the conversation in the the space is did a lift conversion rate, and if it didn't, it's a failure. But yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> like saving. I mean you saved a hundred hours a month over like a couple different things like that's depending on how much they pay their people. That is a, a huge efficiency gain to say nothing of like 100%. cost savings. And yes. yeah, like that's just a really, really cool and unique, uh, unique way of putting that. So that's uh, really glad you brought that one up and could, could expand on that one. Um, and that actually kind of leads into my next question here, because again, you have a great breadth of experience here. And have kind of done it uh, in-house with some very big teams that were very motivated and like bought in and as well as being a kind of freelancer and the consulting side. So I'd be really curious just to get your sense of the commonalities of like what good clients or good internal teams look like in terms of like the buy-in and the traits that they have and how are they mm. different from the bad ones? And then mm. I guess like, preemptive follow-up there. Um, how quickly can you tell? This is Romo Santiago from Experiment Nation. Every week we share interviews with and conference sessions by our favorite conversion rate optimizers from around the world. So if you like this video, smash that like button and consider subscribing. It helps us a bunch. Now back to the episode. <laughs> so, I mean, I think you can get, you can get a really good idea of you know just how you know when i when i assess an experimentation program the first thing i ask for is is like let's let's have a look at some of your documentation and so you know very quickly even just looking at um the way that hypotheses are formed and metrics are selected i think is a is a really is a really dead giveaway as to you know a high performing experimentation team versus one that's just going through the motions in terms of your question around you know what what separates um, good teams and bad teams. I think the essential ingredient of a high-performing experimentation program is executive buy-in. And it, it just, it has to, it can't just be even that sort of token. You know, we often see situations whereby the CEO and the CMO like went to the Adobe Summit and, you know, watched George Clooney talk and went to some experimentation things and, you know, bought all the stuff um, and said, we're doing this now and get really excited about it and, you know, start demanding big results. Not that more um, really ensuring that all the right people care about experimentation and even have it sort of as being part of their role, one of their KPIs. One of the things that I've found has been um, really important with, with, with many of my clients has been whereby the people that are sort of, you know, tangentially related to the experimentation program, um, like let's say, you know, I don't know, UX designers or, or I don't know, certain people in the product team or, or whatever, just have it written into their KPIs that they have to initiate X amount of experiments, you know, per month or quarter or whatever. 
And so even if they're not on board, they kind of have to get up to speed pretty quickly and um, and want to seek it out and want to learn. And I think that that kind of, you know, having that organizational impetus is is invaluable compared to so many organizations that buy the tools, launch a few bad tests, um, get discouraged and it, you know, it sort of trickles, trickles out and they, they do nothing and uh, say that didn't work for us. Yeah, no, that, uh, that makes total sense. I've definitely been there of, uh, yes, like a senior level person going to a summit and then like, okay, mm. we're going to check that box. We're doing this. And yeah. it, <laughs> it peters out pretty quickly once there actually has to be subsequent investment or like a focus on it. So that's, uh, that's really um, makes sense and really helpful. Sorry, go ahead. Or, or just not those big results immediately. You know, it's one of those things that, that vendors and agency alike have been guilty of a lot um, over the years is just talking about those huge conversion rate increases that they use to sell the tool, to build the business case for the, um, uh, for the program or to sell in the agency. And that just creates this huge burden of expectation. Um, and often programs crumble beneath that, you know. And, and one of the things that I'm often working with my clients to impress upon them is the, the promise of experimentation, the fact that you can try multiple things simultaneously and see what works, that's enough. You know, imagine if you could do that in life, like it's a magical proposition as far as I'm concerned. So it's just you, you don't need that. Don't need that hype. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's funny. I actually saw a new targeted ad for an A-B testing platform today. And their whole thing was uh, in less than 90 days, like more than doubling your conversion rate just from these like speculative data and case studies. And I'm like, oh, geez, like yeah, that's just, I feel like we're littered with that. That still exists. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, it always, it just makes it harder, I think, to get the, the buy-in or to understand what, reality should be like yep. a big like what a big win actually looks like in yeah 100 percent. So. for a long time i i felt really sheepish about calling myself a cro i still kind of do because there's there's so many shady operators in the space i think there's there's less now than there used to be but um uh you know there's, there's been a, a lot of a lot of less than scrupulous practices over the years uh, as i'm sure you've seen too oh oh yeah so, I mean, to that end, uh, next question, I kind of want to steer into it. Um, mm. Like you said, like there's a lot of unscrupulous people that have ventured into this space and some of it is just complete nonsense. Um, some of it's good. Like it's uh, it's really hard to say from, without seeing the results. But uh, in kind of like the breadth of your time in the industry, are there any consistent, like consistently bad bits of advice that you've kind of seen given or things that you... When you hear it, you're like, man, I wish I could just kind of slap the person who says that or whatnot. <laughs> um, oh, look, the thing that, you know, just to reiterate, like I do think things are getting better. I think things are getting much more mature than they used to be. Um, the thing that springs to mind, and I don't know to what extent, I don't see this as much as I used to anymore, but a lot of this like test everything mentality Um is very problematic, I think. You know, it's you don't become 
booking.com overnight. You know, you're not running hundreds of experiments a week or month. For most organizations, um, experimentation capability is finite. There's only so many experiments you can run. Um, and I think people need to be realistic about what they can do and really to be very informed about how they choose those things. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 mistake that I see people making over and over again is to think that experimentation is a way that they can uh, prove how clever they are. And and I know this mistake because I've been there. I've done it. Um, yeah. I used to think I've got this great idea and it's going to have a huge impact on conversion and I can prove it and it's going to be wonderful. And of course, it's got no basis in reality. It's just a thing that I thought of. And when you do that enough, you realize that your own head is a very bad filter and it's a it's a bad place to come up with experimentation ideas. So the one thing I just say to people again and again is, you know, be very judicious about what you experiment with. Um, don't expect that you can test everything. Think very clearly about what you experiment on and the best place to find those concepts, um, as, as painful as it probably is to hear it, is just user research. Um, you know, it's talking to your users, it's running those uh, qualitative research sessions. And once you get three, four, five people telling you the same thing, that's a really great filter, you know. And I think that's where you should be doing your discovery. Don't be discovering using um, experimentation. Discover in qual, validate in quant um, is really my gospel. Totally agree. And I was totally that guy early on in my career that, uh, I would like, if it wasn't like, Sheldon. <laughs> I, probably, probably like the first <laughs> year or so I was like, no, I'm not doing surveys. I'm not doing user interviews. If it's not like a heat map or a funnel drop off, not worth testing. And now I'm like mm. almost like the exact opposite. So I, I definitely <laughs> align there. Like, I think that's the, just asking people makes everyone look way smarter and you just get better stuff. So I'm, I'm glad you said that for sure. And, and I think the point is everyone sort of has to go through that journey. And I oftentimes find when working with clients is that I need to like let them make those mistakes for themselves, you know, and see see why that's a bad idea. Because uh, that's the only way I think to sort of get that out of your system. That little bit of like maturation, once they get to the other side of it, totally different ball game. So I want to give you a chance here, um, pivot in a little bit and a little bit of time to brag about yourself. Um, I'm always just curious, uh, in terms of like, there's a lot of like good results out there. Um, everyone has them. If you had to like put one and like, you're given like your, your Ted talk or your keynote or whatever, and you just have to <laughs> kind of like point to something like what's, what's the story you're telling or what's the result you're really wanting to highlight there. And I guess, how did yeah, you write about it too? I mean, I feel like it's almost not it's not worth talking about the, you know, as we sort of touched on before, like experimentation is, it's like playing the lottery oftentimes. You know, there are things that you can do to increase your odds, like, you know, grounding your experiments in research. But those experiments which get, you know, a, a double-digit conversion lift, they happen like every couple of years. I've had a few, um, but they're really rare. And, you know, everyone talks about them. <laughs> Um, and it makes people think that they're a lot more common than they are. So I'm almost, I almost like to sort of shy away from those. But I think I, I there's one that you know I can think of one. 
<laughs> uh, there's one example that springs to mind and it's experiment that it's an experiment that I've spoken about a lot um, because I think it's I think there's a lesson in it. So yeah, many years ago when I was working for EE, the, the telco in the UK, one of the things I, I noticed when sort of doing my first initial examination of their website was that their funnel wasn't tracked correctly. Um, there was a step that was missing as people went from adding a product, adding a phone, handset, and a plan into their cart to going into the um, you know billing and, uh, and delivery section. And that was where they added uh, insurance. And um, I noticed that there was an enormous drop-off at this stage, um, huge. I can't remember what the actual figure was, but it was, it was um, you know, I've completely hallucinated that story. There wasn't a drop-off at that stage. There was nobody, it's how long ago it was. There was nobody adding insurance at that stage. And that's why it had sort of been omitted because it wasn't part of the funnel. Um, and I just asked around that I spoke to some of the people in stores. They had sort of lots of retail stores everywhere and found out, you know, what? how much insurance are you guys selling? And um, they were selling an awful lot more than, than we were selling online. And I watched how they sold insurance and they said, would you like to buy insurance? Fairly simple, you know, something like 30% of people opted in and online it was like, you know, 0.1% or something. And um, I went and looked at the funnel and I saw that the, the step to add insurance was, it wasn't called insurance. It was called clone phone. And this is the thing in selling a commodity product like, uh, like you know, telephony. Everyone's selling the same thing, essentially. So brand marketing is really dominant and they want to add their own spin on it. So they call it lots of fancy things. And I know if I look at Telstra, the big um, uh, mobile telco here in Australia, they call theirs, their insurance thing is called like Stay Connected Plus or something silly like that. Um uh, because they bundle up all these other services to make it, you know, less comparable to other uh, mm -hmm. telcos. And so clone phone was insurance plus, you know, cloud backup. So if you lost your phone, get stolen, whatever, they give you a new one, plus it's got all of your stuff on it. Problem was no one had any idea what this was. Um, and so I ran some tests using uh, what users do, which I think doesn't exist anymore, but it was a British uh, remote usability testing site. And I put five people through it and said, you know, find your handset and uh, add insurance. And uh, I think no one, maybe one person, but basically no one was able to find insurance. And there was one like, I don't know, elderly northern man who spent i think an hour trying to add insurance he was like googling he was searching on the forums he was doing everything he was really determined i think maybe he thought he wasn't going to get paid if he didn't succeed <laughs> um and just and struggled and so we ran one of those famous experiments where we changed two words clone phone into the word insurance and it generated millions and millions and millions of pounds of revenue. Um, the kicker is brand marketing still didn't go for it, but that's the, it's the perils of working in a large organization. <laughs> wow. Yeah, hey, I, I believe it. I've lived that one. Uh, you know, sometimes you can't win that battle, but uh, that's a really cool story, though. Like, I love, uh, especially when you, like, you can go into the... Uh, Kind of combining brick and mortar and e-commerce experiences and like actually i mean literally like seeing how people are buying the product 
and then mm-hmm. doing your best to replicate that online. Like it's such a simple thing that absolutely no one does. Or I mean, a lot of places don't even have brick and mortar anymore, but still like just knowing how people think about it is shockingly rare in the industry. Yeah, I, I was really inspired by um, the guys at Conversion Rate Experts. You know, they've got that that great book, um, Making Websites Win, which I think is just a distillation yep. of so much of their wisdom. And I was reading their blog really avidly back in those days. Um, you've got it on your shelf behind you. Yeah, it's, it's on that <laughs> um, side. Yeah, I've got my copy here too. <laughs> Um, you know, back then, you know, 10 years ago, that was one of really the places, their blog was one of the great places to learn about CRO. And they've always been real advocates for doing research. And I can't think of the term, but they, um, there's a, there's a Japanese term, I think that comes out of the Toyota system, which translates to go to where the thing is happening. You know, if a machine breaks down on the, um, assembly line, don't talk about it in a meeting room upstairs. Go down to the production line and talk to the workers and find out what's happening, and then you'll you'll fix the thing. And so I was very inspired by that sort of um, research that they've done. And, you know, those guys, uh, they're almost like method actors. They go uh, way beyond normal usability research. You know, they talk about when uh, optimizing for a weight loss program, they like join the weight loss program. When they're working on a dating app, they start dating. You know, they find the single guy in the office and they make him date in the app. Um, they are very diligent in the sort of research they do. And I think a, a really good model for, for all of the rest of us. That's actually one thing I've, I mean, we don't do this on all clients, but pretty much anything that is feasible. Um, like I, I try to make a point to buy the product, go through like the shopping experience, the customer experience, like what's the onboarding, what questions do I have? And it's uh, without fail, like exposes some pretty big gaps of like, basically what a like the brand and like their leadership thinks is happening or thinks people understand and what is actually happening and that that real estate between those two is a lot of gold so that's 100 uh, percent. i mean as, as the saying goes like you, you can't read the label if you're inside the jar i think you yeah. know as consultants as practitioners as people that are external to a client's business you know we bring such great benefit just by having fresh perspective by being outside of the business not having the you know what do they call it the curse of knowledge all right so i want to ask you one more question here um kind of speaking what you mentioned earlier about the way things are progressing and seemingly in many ways improving um so i guess to that end like three to five years from now like how do you see like the next iteration of CRO and experimentation and what's, what's different if we're having this conversation in 2028? Mm. I mean, if I think back as to, you know, what's happened in the last 10 years, say the big thing that's happened, I think, and, and particularly witnessing a lot of that from Australia, which has really lagged behind um, the rest of the world in terms of maturity with experimentation, is that it's become a very established practice in many major organizations. You know, 10 years ago, almost no one, certainly in Australia, had an embedded uh, optimization team. Now, most large enterprise organizations do. And I think we're going to see more of that sort of mainstreaming 
of the of the process you know it's and we can look to seo i think as a you know as a parallel it used to be that seo was absolutely the preserve of um of agencies and consultants but now it's just a it's a very normal and important in-house function you know that will have a you know a line into the cmo and, and so on so i think more of that sort of mainstreaming uh we're going to see Beyond that, I don't expect to see anything truly radical. I've I've done a good job at ignoring anyone that talks about AI and optimization. It just seems like bullshit to me. Um, I, mm-hmm. I don't see any value in it. Um, I really think that it's it's as I say, like the promise of experimentation, being able to try different things simultaneously to be able to validate your approach and your strategy, is brilliant enough without you know, plugging in uh, the uh, the deep mind. <laughs> I think we're on the same wavelength there. Like it feels like a consistent, steady march versus something that's truly going to be, you know, completely revolutionary. And maybe yeah. we both look really silly in a few years, but that, I mean, <laughs> you've been at this longer than I have. So yeah, that I have no doubt, but now you've, uh, you've been at this longer than I have. So I think uh, I definitely subscribe to, to your theory there. So Oliver wanted to wrap just by giving, I guess, a chance for you, if anything you want to call out or point to where people can go find more about you if they're still listening. And uh, yeah, just wrap up with uh, any closing thoughts you had. Yeah, hopefully there's one or two still listening. Um, yeah, if, if anyone wants to uh, connect with me, um, obviously LinkedIn's a good place. Uh, I blog over at oliverpalmer.com uh, and have a mailing list where I send out interesting stuff periodically as well. But uh, yeah, oliverpalmer.com is, uh, is a great place to go. Well, Oliver, really appreciate the time here. Glad we can make time zones work. And uh, yeah, it's been great, uh, great chatting with you and uh, hope everyone enjoyed it. Wonderful. Thanks for having me, Sheldon. <laughs>